Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to join me as I turn to Luke chapter 1 in my Bible. Luke chapter 1, our passage, verses 39 through 56 this morning. Title of the message is The Magnificat. One of the things that I love about the Christmas season, especially here at First Baptist Church of Keller, is the beautiful music. So thankful to Matt and all of those who lead us in worship. Uh, I want to also say thanks to the Sunday school class that uh, decorated for us. They spent all Sunday afternoon last week doing that. They did a wonderful job. Well, we have today before us, I suppose, the very first Christmas song. It was a song of praise that came, I think, spontaneously from the mouth of Mary as she began to understand that she indeed was carrying the Savior of the world, the Messiah, in her womb. Last Sunday, we looked at the doctrine of the virgin birth. You recall how the angel Gabriel was sent by God and he visited Mary in that little village of Nazareth and gave her the message that she would conceive a child in her womb by the Holy Spirit and that that child would be the Savior and his name would be Jesus. And certainly, Mary, like any of us, would have questions about such an amazing announcement. She didn't ask for a sign, but the Lord graciously gave her one anyway. He told her that her cousin Elizabeth also was pregnant. This was a miraculous conception as well because you realize Elizabeth had been barren for many years and she was an elderly woman at the time. So, so Mary makes the 60-mile journey down from Nazareth to the hill country of Judea to visit her cousin. And so let's read what happened next. Verse 39, chapter 1. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the hearing of his word. Now you remember that the Bible, of course, is God's story. In the pages of scripture, he reveals his plan to his people. 
And it is God's plan to save his people from his wrath. And so if anyone ever asks you what you were saved from as a Christian, the correct answer is you were saved from the righteous wrath of God. We call this propitiation. Jesus died as satisfaction for God's just requirements. And the way that he chose to accomplish this, of course, is through the virgin birth, the perfect life and sinless life of Jesus, the cross, and through his glorious resurrection. But the way that he verified that plan is through prophecy, particularly in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the proto-evangelist, the first time in the scripture where the Messiah is referenced, God speaking to Satan, says that you have bruised his heel, but he will crush your head, anticipating the time when Jesus would arise, victorious over death in the grave. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would not be a conquering king, but rather a suffering servant, one by whose stripes we would be healed. In fact, a specific item as the city, the village, where the Savior would be born is mentioned in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where he refers to Bethlehem Ephratah as the birthplace of the Savior. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, we are told that Elijah would return and foretell the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus in the New Testament confirmed that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. By the way, when Jesus interprets the Old Testament scripture, we don't need to go to another commentary. He said that John the Baptist has come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Well, these two births, the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Zacharias, the birth of Jesus to Mary, were both miraculous. But one of those births was obviously superior to the other. In fact, that would be the theme of John the Baptist's life, the superiority of Christ. John said he must increase and I must decrease. When Jesus came to be baptized by John, John confessed that he was not worthy even to unlatch his shoes, much less to baptize the Messiah. And so John was a humble servant who knew his role as the forerunner of Jesus. But here we have Mary, and she comes in and has a formal greeting apparently with Elizabeth. And in those days, this went on for some time. And they would catch up on one another's lives. And no doubt, they told one another about their separate visits from the angel Gabriel. The scripture says that when the baby heard this greeting, he leapt in her womb. Which tells us that John the Baptist, even in his mother's womb, was full of the Holy Spirit. Yet another reason for Baptists to be pro-life, right? And so here he is, God working in the womb of Elizabeth. But it also says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, and this was still during the days of the Old Covenant, John the Baptist is considered the last Old Testament prophet. The Holy Spirit would come upon people, not permanently, but for a time, for a special purpose or a task, and such seems to be the case with Elizabeth. Today, Scripture teaches that at the moment of salvation here in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells and infills every believer. In fact, the Scripture says, if you have not the Holy Spirit, you're none of His. Hearing the good news, Mary and Elizabeth break out in praise to God. First, Elizabeth. The Scripture says she cried out with a loud voice. Have you ever been so 
awestruck by the greatness of God that you had to praise him right then and there. You gave no regard for who was around or, or who would hear it. Maybe at the birth of your children or when some theological truth finally clicked that you'd been struggling with for years or when there was an obvious, even miraculous answer to one of your prayers. I don't often recommend videos from the internet, but I received one this week that I think is worth your time. It was put out by a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and it was the story of a Sudanese couple that had been separated for three years. They were in a refugee camp in Africa, and the mother who was pregnant had two other older children, was allowed to immigrate to the States, but the father was not. After three years of bureaucratic red tape, finally he was allowed into the country, and he came to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and was reunited with his wife, his sons, and he saw that baby that had been in his wife's womb for the first time, now three years old. And after he hugged them, kissed them, very emotional, he fell on his knees and praised God. Spontaneous praise. He didn't care who was around. This is the kind of praising and praying that Elizabeth and Mary were doing. Luke 1, 46 through 55 now is Mary's turn to praise the Lord. We sometimes call this section of Scripture the Magnificat. It's because of the very first line, the very first verse. Verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. That word exalt uh, in the Greek is mega luna. You know the word mega means big, right? That word means to make God big, to make much of God, to magnify Him, hence the word magnificat. This is a song of praise that gives God, that gives God glory. To praise God and to worship Him indeed is to make much of Him, to proclaim His greatness. And in this praise song, Mary gives all believers, I'm convinced, a template for praising God. Sometimes we don't know what to pray, right? The Bible says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us at those times. And sometimes we don't know how to praise. But I think this is a great example of how to praise God. Let's look at it. On your outline today, there's three points. Number one, the need of praise. She had to praise God. Joy at the realization of her salvation demanded it. Look at what she says, verse 47. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I said last week that Mary was a great woman, someone worthy of praise, but not worthy of worship. She was a sinner in need of a Savior, and she confesses that very thing here in verse 47. She is praising God for her own salvation, and sinners are those who need salvation. You must understand that we as humans were created to worship. Man and woman are inveterate worshipers. They will worship something. Now, unfortunately, most human beings worship the wrong thing. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. Hold your place there in Luke. Turn a few pages over to Romans chapter 1, a very familiar text. Beginning verse 18 of chapter 1 and going through verse 25, I have written in the margin of my Bible these words. How we got in the shape we're in. <laughs> you ever wonder how the world got in the shape that it's in? Every time I see a story on the news of mass killings or bombings, rapes, 
violence, wickedness of all sorts, I am reminded of this passage of Scripture, how we got as human beings into the condition we're in. This is what Paul says. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So the first thing he says is that every human being is born with the knowledge of God. But man suppresses that knowledge through his sinfulness. Now verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that which has been made. So they were that excuse. So two revelations of himself before the Bible was ever printed. First, God puts on the heart of every human being a knowledge that there is a God. Secondly, we can look at nature. He says the things that have been made, the stars, the planets, the mountains, and realize God is a God of creativity and of power. But that's not enough. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, speaking of humanity, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. You remember the book of Genesis before sin entered the world, how Adam and Eve would get up in the morning and God would literally visit them, some physical manifestation. They enjoyed sweet fellowship there in the cool of the garden. But when sin entered the world, they were separated from God. And your science book probably told you that since that time, man has been evolving upward and better. The Bible says just the opposite, that man has been going down the drain, further and further from God. So he started out worshiping God face to face in his glory, and now man worships statues and animals. And he says, creepy, crawly things. There are religions in the world that literally worship snakes, spiders, monkeys. Verse 24, therefore, that is because of this, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what the vast majority of humanity does today is they worship, but they don't worship the true God in the true way. Thanks be to God, we have an example back in Luke chapter 1 of Mary who worshiped the true God in the right way. We know that humans, when they see true greatness, spontaneously praise it, right? You're watching a basketball game and LeBron James does a 360 dunk from the free throw line. You spontaneously praise that, right? <laughs> if you know anything about sports. You, you cheer, you clap, you call your buddy and say, do you see this? If you are a lover of art, you go to a museum and you see a masterpiece, you praise it. You declare that it is magnificent. And so it is with worship. How much more if we praise art and sports and Animals in nature for their magnificence, how much more the creator of the universe deserves our praise. 
Mary understands that, and so she breaks out in a song of praise. But it's not just important that we praise. All humans do that. It's important, it's essential that we praise the right one. I don't know if you find it as frustrating as I do this time of year when the local news media will go for their man-on-the-street interviews on Thanksgiving Day or, or Black Friday and They'll interview people and they'll say, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving season? And then they'll list good health and family and friends. But almost none of those people who are interviewed can articulate to whom they are grateful. Seems to be some nebulous figure or some ethereal thing called the universe. You'll notice that's not what Mary does Look what she says in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul exalts who? The Lord. Now Mary was a Jewish girl and she grew up reading the Old Testament scriptures and no doubt she knew the verse in the Old Testament that says, the Lord is a warrior. Jehovah is his name. Mary knew to whom she was giving thanks. She was not thanking Mother Nature for this baby that grew in her womb. She was not thanking some unnamed invisible force called the universe, she was thinking the Lord. Now the question becomes, how did Mary know who to praise? I told you last week she was likely a young teenage girl between the ages of 13 and 15. She was not a trained theologian. I think reading between the lines, there's no doubt that someone had taught Mary the Bible. Here's how I know. Look at verse 48. She says, for he has regard for the humble state of the bond slave. For behold, from this time on, generations will count me blessed. This is a quotation from 1 Samuel. It is the words of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Mary knew the Bible. When she says, all generations will count me blessed, she's referring to the words of Leah in Genesis chapter 30. In fact, Almost every line in this song is a reference in some way to an Old Testament passage of Scripture. And so that leads me to say this. Parents, it's Christmas time. Those of you that have children at home, I know. I have four of my own. You want to make them happy, right? You're asking them what they want. You're trying to fish for hints. What on Christmas morning would make them smile? Let me just say this. There is nothing more important you can do for your children. There is no greater gift you can give your children than to teach them the Word of God. Mary's parents taught her the Word of God. There's no doubt about it. You say, well, look, my kids are teenagers now. We've never done it. We've never had family altar. We've, We've never studied the Bible together. We've never prayed together. Start now. As long as your children at home, you have an opportunity to influence them in their lives and their decision making. Yes, you have wasted some time, as we all have. Ask the Lord's forgiveness and move forward. Commit today that you're going to spend the rest of their time at home teaching them the Word of God. You say, well, they know more more than I do. Look, I used to be a high school history teacher. And I started when I was 22 years old. I can tell you, at 22 years old, I was not an expert in world history. In fact, as far as I can tell, I was only expert in one thing, and that was college football. And there was not a great demand for jobs for that when I got out of college. So I took a job teaching history, 
And do you know what I did every day? I stayed one lesson ahead of my class. And I studied harder than I ever studied in my life because I didn't want to be a fool come Monday morning. And one of the great motivators for you to study your Bible is so that you can teach it to your children. And parents, what a great opportunity and task and blessing we have to teach our children the Word of God. Don't be embarrassed. Just start. That leads us thirdly and finally to to the cause for praise. We've seen the need of praise. Mary would have burst if, if she didn't praise the Lord. Reminds me of what Jesus said. Remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, when he was entering Jerusalem triumphantly at the end of his earthly ministry, people were throwing robes in the road and cutting palm branches down and laying them in his path and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And do you know what the scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus? Tell those disciples of yours to be quiet and stop praising you. And do you know what Jesus said to them? He says, if they don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. Somebody's going to praise the Lord, and it ought to be his people. The scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord do what? Say so. And Mary was saved, and she has to tell somebody. And, and then the object of praise is her Savior. It's God. And then she gets very specific here and lists the causes that we should praise him. Isaiah 12, verse 5 says, praise the Lord in song. For he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Do you, do you know why we spend so much time and money and energy here at this church on music? Because the Lord is worthy of excellence, right? Would you agree with me that our Lord has done excellent things? This is what Mary says, verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things. The Lord has done incredibly great things. He has spoken a word and this planet began to spin on its axis. He spoke the word and the plants and the animals came forth alive. He spoke the word and humanity was birthed. He is worthy of our praise. But the thing that he's most worthy of praise is our salvation. And this is what Mary praises him for most of all. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift cometh from the Father above. That includes, I believe, art, poetry, music, the very song that Mary here is singing. We need to, though, make sure, speaking of Christian music, that the music that we say is Christian is worthy of Christ and worthy of God. I was listening recently to a quote-unquote Christian radio station And I noticed that the most often used lyric in the three or four songs that I stopped to listen to was I, or me, or my. Seems to me that a lot of the music this day is focused internally on us. And listen, when I study the Bible, when God's people have an interaction with God, they don't use the terms I, my, and me very much. It's you and your, and thy. And the only time the word I and me is used is when Isaiah says, woe is me, because you're holy and I'm not. It reminds me of the story of the two people that were having a conversation. It was a very one-sided conversation. One person was dominating, the other was silent. 
This person was going on and on talking about their personal feelings and personal problems and, and personal accomplishments. And he began to notice that the person he was telling these things to was losing interest after about 20 minutes. And, and so he decided, I better include them in the conversation. And so he says, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> and that seems to be sometimes how we approach worship. God, here's my problems. Here's my needs. Here's what I want. Here's who I am. Here's how I feel. That's not what Mary does. Mary begins to list what God has done. He says in verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. That's taken directly from Psalm 103:17. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud. Well, let's just walk through some of these things she says. Verse 51, mighty deeds with his arm. Now we know God is not like us. He doesn't have a literal arm. Theologians call this anthropomorphism. It's, it's giving human-like traits to something that is not human. The Bible says God is spirit. He cannot be confined to a human body. Now, he condescended, as you heard in the song today, to take on a human body for a brief time in the person of Jesus. But God, in his essence, is not a man. But when we say that God has done mighty deeds with his arm, it's just God allowing us to use the only words we know for powerful. And God has done mighty deeds. I listed some of those earlier. He says, he has scattered the proud. Certainly, she must have been referring to the Tower of Babel. You remember when those wicked people led by Nimrod, after God had told them after the flood, after the Lord had begun to repopulate the earth to spread out and repopulate the land, they stayed in one little valley. They began to progress and they began to be great in their own mind and they decided they were going to build a tower to heaven. And rather than being their greatest moment of pride, God used it to humble them. And he scattered them and confounded their language. She says that he has brought down rulers from their thrones. God has done that countless times, right? Men and women who thought they were powerful and untouchable. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Went out on his rooftop there in Babylon and says, Look what I, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, have done. I have built roads and bridges and gardens. And God sent him out into the wilderness and he lost his mind, literally. For a time. He did the same thing in the New Testament to Herod, do you remember? Herod put on this shiny suit of clothing and he went out and the people began to say, Herod, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod did not rebuke them for calling him a God. And the Bible says the Lord struck him with worms and he died immediately. The Lord tears down rulers. Dictators. Did you see yesterday that Fidel Castro died? 90 years old. It reminded me the time that I have spent in Cuba with our Baptist brethren there. How they were suppressed and oppressed and abused by him. And I was reminded of this verse. And our president this week said, history will be his judge. No, sir. The Lord will be his judge. As he will be all of our judge. Because the Lord raises up kings and he tears them down. Mary knew it. He exalts the humble. He did that many times. I think of King David, who didn't start out as a king. He started out as a, 
a little shepherd boy. When the prophet came to anoint the next king, they brought every son except David. They didn't think of him, but he was the one. The Lord is also humble. He does that in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Lord does not choose many noble or wise or wealthy, but he has chosen the humble things of the world to confound the wise. She says he has filled the hungry with good things. Jesus fed those that were hungry and he sent away the rich young ruler who was not humble. Verse 54 and 55 tells us that, that Mary's knowledge of the Old Testament scripture included some very deep theology. She had an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. We've been studying the Abrahamic covenant on Wednesday night in here, and it's, it's very wonderful. He told Abraham that he should go to a land that he would show him, and he would make his name great, and his descendants would be as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. He was going to make a great nation from him, and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Speaking, of course, of the Messiah. Mary knew that. She understood it. And she understood in some way that she was now a part of that. Abrahamic covenant that started with Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob all the way down through David and all the way down through descendants through Mary until that good day in which Jesus would be born. Mary had to tell someone, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, and so she did. She gave personal testimony to the salvation of God. We have a great opportunity this season to give personal testimony to the goodness of God. You'll notice, verse 49, that she does not give general or generic praise. When our children are first learning to pray, at least it was this way in our family, they begin with very general and generic prayers, such as, God bless everybody. <laughs> and that becomes, at some point, God bless my family and my friends and my church. And then it becomes naming specific people. And then it becomes naming specific needs of specific people. And, and that's how they mature. So, so don't rebuke them for praying general requests unless they're 35 years old. And then you can rebuke them a little bit. We need to grow and mature and make progress in our prayer life. And here's Mary, probably a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, and she's praying a very mature prayer. She's thanking the Lord for his salvation. She's reciting back to him the mighty works that, that he has done. And even remembering the covenant promise of Abraham that now she gets to be a part of. Now, here, here's the opportunity we have. Did you have family members with you on Thanksgiving? Can I ask you a very personal question? Was there anybody around your Thanksgiving table who, as far as you know, is lost? There was at our house. I bet there was at your house. In a few weeks, you're probably going to regather with those same people at Christmas, am I right? And there's probably going to be that opportunity that maybe some of us did not take this week to give testimony of the goodness of God. And I would encourage all of us, and myself most of all, to don't waste 
Christmas. View it as an opportunity to do as Mary did. You don't have to sing, but open your mouth. Give glory to God. Remind your friends and family why there is a Christmas and what it means. And who knows how the Lord will use you for his glory. You might have noticed that Christmas and New Year's Day falls on a Sunday this year. And probably some of you were looking through your calendar and said, oh no, this is going to mess everything up. (laughs) No, it's not. This is great. This is a great opportunity. Bring your family to church on Christmas and I promise you they're going to hear the gospel. On New Year's Day, we're going to have a great day here. If for nothing else that I'm not going to preach. (laughs) We're going to give testimonies. People in the church are going to come up and they're going to tell how the Lord has answered their prayer in the past year. And then we're going to sing praises to God. And then we're going to pray and thank the Lord for that. And we're going to do that several times. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do what the Bible says. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Will you do me a favor? Will you go home and get out your calendar and mark January 1 and December 25th on your calendar. And if you're in town, will you not stay home? Will you come and join with the church family and sing and praise to the Lord? I think that's what Mary would do. And I think that's what all of us should do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for the song of praise composed by this Jewish girl, Mary. Father, I thank you that no doubt her parents must have taught her the word when they rose up in the morning and when they gathered around the table and when they went to bed at night. Father, help all of us as parents to do the same. Even those, Father, that that might have wasted many years, help us to start today with your help to teach our children the Word of God, to give them the greatest gift that we could give this Christmas season. Father, you indeed have done great things. And the greatest thing you've done is to send Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect, sinless life, and to go to the cross as atonement, sacrifice, satisfaction for my sins and for the sins of the world. Father, I would pray if there's someone in this room today who has no assurance of salvation, that they would call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Father, you have told us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And Father, I pray this Christmas season that you'd be pleased to use our witness as a church family to bring many to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Lord, I pray you do this for your renown and for your fame and for your glory because Lord, we want to exalt you to make much of you, to magnify you and not ourselves. Would you do that today, Father, for your name's sake. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.